welcome to the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, episode number... I don't know, I didn't check beforehand. 49. 49? That's not true, we've gone past 50. <laughs> yeah, but I like 7 times 7. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's not... It's sum. I mean, 49, I wish it was, it, actually it's 54. So you've both failed the first part of the Shut Up and Sit Down oh, podcast quiz. 9 oh. times 6. That's no points on the board, although Pip does get one point for maths. <laughs> So today we're, we're coming to you live uh, out of a bush at GDC. We're not. We're in a hotel room at GDC. We are indeed. You like travelling journalists. Yeah, but it's I mean... exciting. We could add some bush <clears throat> sound effects. We probably won't. We are travelling journalists. Um, but the difficulty with being at GDC, of course, is it's in a different part of the world. It's on a different clock system, which means that we are always slightly mad. Well, you two might be jet-lagged. <clears throat> I'm just slightly croaky. They have a different <clears throat> egg system. As well. Uh-oh. Yes. Yeah. What's happening? What? Well, I mean, they they have the wrong time, according to my body, and then they have eggs that I don't understand. I don't understand what an over-easy is. Yeah. Oh, we talked about this. We but, did. Um, I was explaining it yeah. to Pip this morning that you have to... That the egg system is different. In that's, the UK, you just... how you produce eggs. They come out of your no, 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 ovaries. No. No. You specifically. <laughs> you have to ask, yep. there's like sunny side up, over-easy, over-medium. Whereas in the UK, we just say fried... Um, but you or need to know. Or or scrambled. Yeah, but there's like a wide number of selections that you choose in America that if you do it, they just won't cook your egg properly, and you'll end up with like the white bit not cooked. Oh, that's but horrible. But then when it you is. ask, you're like, "What are my options?" Then they reel them off really fast, and you're like, "That didn't help anyone." Yeah, yeah. I just got words in my face. I spent years ordering eggs sunny side up or over easy because I'd heard mm. them said in films, and it sounded yeah. cool. And even when I realised that, that wasn't how I liked eggs, I still kept doing it for a very long time. I just have scrambled because I like them scrambled, and here they scramble them the same. That's true. The physics are the same. If you go to the uh, like the southern hemisphere, like Australia, the scrambling is wrong because everything twists in the other direction. That's but. true. And that is all for today's segment on egg news. Um, but we have some exciting news that's not about eggs. Uh, mm. We'll jump into the podcast straight away. We recently, you may know, you may not, have launched a Kickstarter for an expansion for monikers. Yeah, we have. We've been working on this secretly for some time. And it's 112 cards that we all worked on. Mm, yes, like Quinns did some as well. He's not here. He's in sunny England. Pip did some fantastic ones. Yes. Uh, Paul did some great ones. Mm. I did some good ones. <laughs> and <laughs> that's not quite true. And anyway, they all come together to make a wonderful little pack of, of funny things. Can I quickly ask you guys what were your like your favorite ones that you did or that you came up with or that you improved upon? <sighs> I don't know. I think for me the best part of it was um because I didn't know exactly when the Kickstarter was actually launching and so sort of going to the page when I saw it come up in a tweet and then seeing like uh, some of the things that I'd written down in a spreadsheet. Yeah. Actually, on a, on card. a card. Yeah. That was like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> that was huge for me as well. I got quite excited when we were playtesting it and I'd written them and printed them out and I was like, oh, this is cool. Yeah. But then when I saw them actually in the proper Monica's format, I was like, oh my God, this is a real thing. This is Too really late now. I can't pull back. <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited about it. I can't remember specifically any of the ones I've done, but I remember being quite proud, quietly proud of a lot of the, the it, jokes. Actually, this is a weird thing. I can't remember exactly which started as which I did. There's a couple where I'm like, I think I did that. But then there are things like, I came up with a card, but it would be like, Matt wrote the text for it and the text is actually funnier than the card. Uh, that's the funny thing though. Everyone's like, yeah, I'm going to go through them and like, Work out which ones were Quinns, which ones were Paul, which ones were Matt, which ones were Pip. You can't really do that because, like, some of them, the titles are written by one person and then yeah. the copy was written by someone else. And then the copy was edited by someone yes. else. Like, so it's been a really fun collaborative writing experience. Um, and it was also really fun to playtest and do it because we found that actually, like, a lot of the stuff that we'd done in the first round of writing we thought was really funny actually made the Monica's game, like, harder to play or less fun to play. So it was really interesting, like, trying to determine, uh, as a design exercise, to determine the types of humour that would really work and the types of humour that would kind of get in the way. Yeah. But no, we're super excited about it. It's on Kickstarter now. You can, um, if you're interested in grabbing a copy, you can go to nonsensebox.sexy. <laughs> which is a, a web link suggested by the Monica's team that when they suggested that, it just made me laugh so I much. I didn't know this. Like, I didn't yeah, know that fine. part no, of it. I didn't know that. Yeah, it wasn't pushed by me. I wasn't allowed to clear that. This was specifically mm. made for this podcast so we could tell people an oh, easy dear. thing to go to. Nonsensebox.sexy. Um, 
said I mean, Paul in his croaky low tones. Nonsensebox.sexy. <laughs> yeah, so, go, I mean, I'd say at the very least, go and check out the page. The video we made for it is very stupid. It's and wonderful. We'll it's, entertain it's you. you and Matt being really good. Yeah, it's, it's like, really good. <laughs> so, yeah, go and check that out. Um, Pledge of Guy. It's only $10. I think, obviously, you've got shipping and stuff as well. But if you haven't got the base of Monica's game, then you can get that as well. It's all pretty reasonable. But, uh, yeah, that's quite exciting news. So people can check that out if they want to. Very well. Mm. Next up, uh, I guess we'll talk a little bit about what we're doing at GDC. What are we all doing at GDC? Well, we're running the board game lounge, Paul. I was hoping you were going to explain that. <laughs> I, was, I was providing a prompt. Um, we are. We've got a huge uh, upstairs third floor Sheridan sedan space, which is like, I think it's twice as big as the one we had last year. Because the one we had last year kept getting so full of people. I'm basically just boasting here. <laughs> that we said to GDC, you've got to make it bigger because, yeah. you know, you've got to deal with the demand. Yeah. And they made it bigger and they let us put more games in it, which is nice because that attracts more people and lets us show off more ideas yep. and get more people into gaming. And funnily enough, GDC has a whole track of board games, which just ran just the other day, like yes. a whole day worth of board game talks, which I mostly missed. But did either of you grab any? I did. Uh, we both actually went to the Loss Aversion uh, talk that uh, Jeff gave, uh, which was really interesting. It was fascinating, actually. wasn't it? Yeah, it was all about, like, there was some psychological research uh, referenced in there that people might be familiar with, just about, like, how people are sort of really averse to things getting taken away from them once they've mm. been given. So, you know, whether people will switch if they have chosen a cup with a thing under it as their their gamble to win some money. And then, you know, if you say, OK, well, you know, do you want to switch? And people just won't and you have to sort of really up the, um, the amount that you give them as compensation for switching to sort of entice them away from their choices and things people get re weirdly possessive about stuff don't yeah. they as soon as they have it like even in a game situation yeah and so it's about sort of whether where you use that to your advantage and where it actually pushes people away from your game because you know the i can't remember the the stats of it was it that loss is you feel the loss twice as much of the same thing as the game. Yes, absolutely. So basically, it's like, uh, yeah, the, the, I can't basically, the exact thing. They found that, like, in the, in the 1984 study, they found that, like, losses are twice as intense as gains. So they have the same like, amount. They measured it. Yeah, so they, yeah. And they measured it in a, a psychological study, like, in the 80s. Yeah, so they found that even if it's like you're losing $10 or you're gaining $10, the, the feeling of losing $10 was twice as intense as how good you felt when you got $10. So it's this really interesting thing. I mean, I just personally found it was fantastic because it was a talk about games and talk about manipulating players, but not manipulating players into just, like, keeping playing or giving you money, yeah. which is a standard thing in a lot of game design, especially yeah. in digital game design. This was just yeah. talking about, like, the fact that obviously it was framed sometimes as being, like, this can be really bad. Like, you don't want players to be having a bad time. Yeah. But it was also saying, like, but sometimes you do. Like, mm. sometimes you might want a player to feel like, Oh, no. Like, you've just lost something. I mean, I took a bunch of notes here, so I mean, some of the stuff was fascinating. Like, he was talking about how um, some things are just seem to be, like, losses that are too heavy, like the Dungeons & Dragons thing. The level drain. Yeah. Yeah, and how, Ooh, yeah. like, even in the offshoot branch, is it Pathfinder? Or, yes, yeah. I think so. Like, even there, it was like, no, that's the thing that we get rid of, um, sort of from 4th edition onwards and from Pathfinder. It was just like... No, people just find this too sort of yeah. viscerally miserable. I can relate to that because having played D&D, &D, like especially when I was younger, it feels like, you know, you advance, you put energy and time yeah. into your character and it's someone knocking you back and it's not, it's not like they're taking an item away or an opportunity away. It feels almost like they are pushing you back in time when they yeah. do that. Mm. Well, this is, for those who don't know, the I didn't know actually, the level drain thing is basically means if, if you get touched by a white or a leech, yeah. then you don't get to make a saving roll, you just lose loads of experience. So you might go back to an earlier level. You get withered um, and sort of Reduced as a person. I think they added a save roll in like yeah. third edition or something, mm -hmm. okay. but then took the whole thing out. Yes, yeah, so they afterwards. tried to kind of make it more fair, but yeah. it was funny because some people kind of liked it. Some people felt that they the, the sensation of loss was really intense, and they felt like their character had lost a part of themselves. And they found that in terms of role playing, it was great. But most people were just like, most people said they would have rather that character died. <laughs> 
Wow. Um, so, which like, is, lose everything rather than, I guess... Which is fascinating. Cut off the nose to spite the face kind of thing. But you can see but, how that just got yeah. phased out, and now no version of Pathfinder or D&D has it. They just Interesting. Sort of lost it. But the... Yeah, like, so part of me, as somebody who doesn't play and sort of is looking in from the outside... To me, that feels like a shame because as some of the comments about it explained, like people hated it, but because it was terrifying as well, you know, like the the idea of losing that progress was one of the only things in D&D that could be legitimately scary at some points. And so, yeah, yeah like I, for me, that feels a shame that that tool is gone for like the storytelling but it's interesting and the other interesting thing about the talk was um the framing side of things so you know if you it's all related obviously but if you say to somebody you are going to lose a point that's very different from saying everyone else is going to gain a point like they have the exact same effect mathematically most of the time but like it's the psychological difference of what people will be happy to keep playing and feel is okay as a system that other people are making progress fine but it's not you making regress yeah it was strange you were saying that yeah if you if you have a player being penalized for something in terms of like it's actually better in terms of them feeling okay about it to actually give bonuses to everyone else but then sometimes you might want a player uh, to feel penalised. You might want a player in a circumstance to feel like they, they have taken a risk and it's failed and they, they are now in a worse position. So what is loss aversion? Was this just about trying to get people used to losing more? Well, it was yeah. more about um, how you can use people's loss aversion. or like. So it, it's essentially about how you don't want to lose the things that you have been given or that you have gained, you know? And so it was more about the awareness of that being important for game design, both for finding the points where people might drop off your game or find it sort of weirdly punishing in a way you don't expect if you're just looking at the mathematics or the probability um, and sort of keeping them playing, especially if like kids are involved, you know, Mm. Um, but also how you can it's that same awareness of flipping that on its head and using it for for other effects you know sort of if you want something to feel really punishing or upsetting or like just more emotional you know you can it 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 wasn't about it being bad it was more just about how you can use it both ways the awareness yeah absolutely and it was a weird thing like simple things like the fact that 80 percent of people if it's a circumstance where you might get something new um and you can either have like let's just say like oh you definitely get two points or you've got an 80 percent chance that you'll get three points right when it comes to getting things, when it comes to gains, people will 80% of the time take the sure gain over the gamble. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to losing something, 80% of people will take the gamble that they don't lose anything, but might lose more. So it comes... Oh, I don't like that. <laughs> oh, maybe, I was... oh. maybe I've got that wrong. No, no, people... So people will gamble to avoid a loss. They will take a chance to avoid a loss. I don't like that. Or, but they will always take the sure gain over gambling to get more, which is... Which is strange, even though they're, mathematically they're exactly the same. I mean, mm. it was again the framing stuff was amazing because it was like you just by shifting the dynamic in it is a big thing. But the interesting thing he talks about in terms of board games, which is a, a thing that I guess maybe is a really simple psychological way of explaining the way that I certainly feel about a lot of old board games, is that a lot of the uh, the older board game designs like Monopoly and Risk and stuff were based on mechanics where you would gain stuff and then lose stuff. Yes. And that was kind of a lot of the game was about. And it was fascinating that with the Euros in the 90s, one of the major changes was this sense of constant building, the sense of yeah. game where you can't lose anything. And it means you, you completely avoid all of the negative uh, problems and negative mind states that come with that. But obviously it's fascinating that now we've also seen games which are playing with that again now and playing with death and you know games where you can like take gambles and they can kill you and make things bad and it it still feels strange to play legacy games and to just uh make decisions that are permanent and Mm. tear things up and throw them away and be told like uh this is not going to be in your game anymore ever again they talked about he talked about that Mm. the fact that you start legacy games by like tearing something up one of the first things it asks you to do is now destroy this card yeah and just gets you in that mindset of like this is this is something you've and I like the idea of you've just bought this game you've mm. literally just got this and now it's telling you to destroy it so it's immediately getting players into that mindset of like losing stuff that they have 
which yeah. is well, so, and it also immediately forges an emotional response to the game which is kind of interesting mm. um one of the things that i really liked as an example because i sort of read that stuff anyway but was uh he took hearthstone uh one of the cards from that which is essentially that you draw three uh cards from the top of your deck you get to choose one to keep in your hand and then the other two just get discarded and that people sort of you know you can understand mathematically the uses of it if you dig down a bit or if you have that particular sort of very analytical approach to the whole thing but most people react really badly to it or kind of like Mm. there's an instinctive i don't want to do that and so um people feel like they're wasting cards because they have to throw away two of the cards so they feel like they might they they fix they fixate on the fact that two of the cards of the three cards they draw might be cards that they really want to play that they then can't yeah but the thing is, like, I think uh, he was also making a point about proximity because people were more comfy with, uh, or were potentially more comfy with the idea of you draw, I think, what was it? You draw the three, you keep one, you shuffle the other two back into the deck, yeah. and then you discard two from the bottom. And it's the fact that the two are from the bottom, that lack of proximity makes it an easier loss. Yeah, because your brain thinks, like, because if you're drawing three and discarding two, you're like, oh, I'm discarding that, and I was going to draw that next turn. Yes. But yeah. then if it's from the bottom, you think, well, I'm probably never going to get to the bottom anyway, even though it's like, doesn't really make a big difference but also it's worse because you then don't know what you've lost from your deck and you can't plan around it because they were just two random shuffled cards well that was the other thing that i thought was fascinating (laughs) was the fact that um people like to make decisions based on the information they currently have available yes and it means that actually the result of that is people want to have if possible less information which doesn't really make sense, but it also does because it means that the more information we have potentially available, the more it is a stressful decision. So they found a thing of like, you know, if you say like, um, if I say, right, I'm going to roll a dice and if you can like guess the number on it, then you, you'll get this prize or whatever, right? But then you can say to people like, would you prefer that I roll the dice and then you guess what the number is or you guess a number and then I roll the dice and people will always, almost always choose guessing the number before the dice is rolled because as soon as the dice has been rolled information exists which you don't have access to that's weird and fascinating it is isn't it this it's probably not I don't know it might be slightly related but I remember reading things about some of the more modern white houses and how uh, the executive branch administration works I think Obama was talking particularly about the amount of information he's given and the amount of time he spends making a decision to try and optimise the amount of things that you can do in a day mm-hmm. and running an, an efficient administration or business, things like this. Obviously, you need to know lots of things, but there's an infinite amount of knowledge that you could know about something. Mm-hmm. And if you spend all your time trying to learn about a thing, you can't act on a thing. Mm-hmm. And there could be like yeah. 50 things in your day. So there was something, I can't remember, it was in an interview somewhere, but it was about prioritizing how much people tell you and trying to draw the line of what is the useful information, how hypothetical do you get? And it sounds, I don't know, a little bit like that. Well, choice paralysis was kind of mentioned. Mm. It was Mm. one of the points that got touched on, but it's something that I am just familiar with on trips to supermarkets. Like, I actually quite like going to, like, the little corner shops because sometimes it's just like, I just, I want someone that doesn't have the shelf space to give me 9 million options for laundry detergent because I cannot cope with that as like my having to choose for everything I do. I just want, okay, I've got three things. I like that one better. They said psychologically the number is seven. Like if you have Mm. more than seven choices, that's the point where human brains like can't really deal with it. That's interesting because apparently that's the optimal number of people to be in charge of in a job or that's the sort of the best. Yeah, seven is a number that pops up in psychology a lot. It's also the number of things you can remember. Seven times seven, mate. (laughs) <laughs> wow and that brings us back episode 49 dan, dan, dan. but yeah no i mean i thought i explained analysis paralysis perfectly as well like i find a lot of time especially when i'm playing heavier euros i'm fine at the beginning and then when i get to the end i just suddenly freeze i think it's probably i haven't counted the number of choices but i think it's when you get to that thing of being like which of these number of choices are the best thing to do and towards the end of those games you you end up having yeah more options you find your brain just slows down to a halt. So I think I find that with things like um, when we played Subterfuge as well, it was kind of that thing of there's just so much... 
potentially that I could do or like because it was essentially just a game about conversations and choices and so because at that point the variables are infinite mm. functionally infinite in yeah. that I could choose to have a conversation with anyone I could choose any way of framing anything that I was doing yes. and at that point it just became this unmanageable thing so I just thought I'll just play honestly because at least that removes the choice the choices yeah no that makes a lot of sense if you're interested in that, actually you should check out our uh it was something uh, we were all involved with actually and quinn's uh, on that we did on cool ghosts last year on the youtube channel if you uh, search for subterfuge diaries you'll find it on youtube it's a short video series uh it was actually it was very good um so <laughs> i don't say that about everything i do but it was, it was very good <laughs> that game is so much nonsense but that's a chat for a, probably a different yeah absolutely <laughs> but i mean i think the the final thing that he talked about a lot was endowment and as you said at the start it's this idea of, of once you've got something people will work very hard to keep it yeah and sometimes that means that they make a choice about something and then you go are you sure you don't want to change your mind about what you're doing and then people will, are much more likely to go no we're just doing what we're doing which i find a lot in co-op games like your first plan you go on it, and then sometimes the information changes, and you go, oh, actually, no, I'm not sure this is a good idea, but it's still hard to shift away from that original plan. People feel, like, entitled or invested in a thing to a point that's not quite rational. Yeah. Or, but or also, not you practical. don't want to regret if you change, because at least if you stay, you didn't change, you know? Ah. So even if you were wrong, it's it's slightly less yeah. upsetting than was... if you changed and the initial thing was wrong, and you then have the regret as well as the People wrong. People said it was three times as bad. That was, like, scientifically, they found that switching from one thing to the wrong thing was three times as bad as just getting it wrong in the first place, which is interesting. Game psychology. But, um, I mean, I thought about this and it made sense. Like, one of the games that I really thought about, but especially in the terms of, like, you don't want to lose something you already have or you will, if you lose it, then you will try and get it back. The thing that I thought about was the Game of Thrones board game and the fact <laughs> that you have, like, you are the master of, you know, uh, information. I can't remember what the terms are. Yes, but like you, you have the sword, or you have the raven, or yeah, exactly. And I don't remember the terms, but I remember the raven. And I remember the sword, and <laughs> I think that's a thing: is when people have a little Chotsky thing in a board game in front of them that is just theirs. People really are irrational about it, and they want it. Like I remember having uh, games of Game of Thrones where somebody started with the sword, and they were like, "Yes, I got that," and then. Whenever they lost it, they just wanted to get it back. And that was their game. Like, they didn't really win or try and win. They just, yeah. mm. that was the most important thing. But I mean, the, the talk ended with Pip asked a really good question about um, just about like how this impacts games. Because he was talking about it in terms of mechanics. But Pip mm. made the great point of just saying how this affects games like, as a whole. And it is interesting that like, it's basically the idea that loss doesn't have to be bad. And loss actually can be an interesting part of the experience. Like forcing players to lose something and go through that emotion. Um, but it's interesting how, like, if that's the end of the experience, if that's that like you've finished a game and you've lost, then you can't really do a lot with that. Mm. Like, um, and I think that's an interesting thing. And it made me think about the way that losses are framed in games. And uh, a game I've been playing a bunch of recently, Inish, is, uh, yeah. has a really interesting way of framing that. And the fact that, like, you're not actually trying to fight each other for supremacy in the same way. It's like you are one big kind of clan and it's like who the, who's going to be in charge it's, it's like you're not going to get wiped out afterwards so I found that when I've lost games of that and I've had an opportunity to choose who's going to be the king or the queen um, I kind of feel like that's been a satisfying choice that hasn't made me feel like I've lost I feel like I've pledged my allegiance to one person as in like yeah they're mm -hmm. the person who deserves okay. to be in charge Okay, they've been good to me I think and I think it's interesting how like maybe there are more ways that games can be framed not necessarily in the kind of like, hey, everybody won, but of just reframing losing so that the end of your experience. And I think that's why a lot of people, you can't get them into board games because they've played a board game like Monopoly or whatever oh, when, they, when they're yeah. younger. Mm. Or, and in lots of people's view, you'd say, hey, do you want to play a board game? And they're like, oh, I've done that before. And what happens is I invest two hours of my time into a thing and then the end of that experience is loss. I think as well, like if you're not, au fait with board games or if you find mechanics a bit difficult to grasp the first time around and especially if you're playing with people who are more familiar with the hobby then it can just be like well I know I'm not going to win because I won't have mm -hmm. grasped all of the things and I will have spent that two hours I won't really have learnt much because I'm just slower at picking this stuff up so what is there for me there you know and sort of I think if you do get to the end and you do feel 
that you lost the progress that you made or that you didn't gain anything from it. I, that's the thing that it left me wondering about was mm. because, so my parents both hate board games and I've sort of tried to get them into it. And I'm just wondering whether this is p part of it, at least. I mean, obviously it's sort of different reasons for different people, but it's one of the things where I, I do think that they would view it maybe as a waste of their time or that, you know, it's, I don't know at what point it becomes loss aversion or whether just not even engaging with the hobby is a very extreme form of aversion to, <laughs> to loss. But um, yeah, so that's what it... Because the talk was mostly focusing on either individual mechanics or it was focusing on games where like one choice was the whole game, really. Uh -huh. um, so yeah, it was more just about... I, I was wondering how big you can get with the ideas before they get a bit too woolly and muddled up in everything yeah. else and you can't really unpick them properly yeah it's true and it made me think a lot about actually what we talked about in the last podcast of uh when we talk about older games like uh things like blood bowl and oh, yes. uh, and um space hulk and about how i i really felt like asymmetry was a problem in that if, if something feels unfair and asymmetrical then that's not a good combination um but things feeling unfair but symmetrical kind of creates this sense of like it's okay because it can go either way and I, I thought an interesting thing that made me realize about this whole lost thing was a game uh, that jumped to mind for me was galaxy trucker and the fact oh, yeah. that like the whole yes. game is about building your cool ship and then watching as your ship is destroyed but i think if ever, each player rolled a dice and each player had their own asteroid their own problem that landed in a different place I think that would be really frustrating, but because it's like you're, you all share this minefield. Oh, you see, the same things happen to people. The same thing happens yes. to everyone. Like the asteroid hits that place on everyone, and it might be that for one person they go, "Oh, that's not a problem for me," but for me, that's that's destroyed my ship. It's ripped in <laughs> half. But because you each, I, I really feel like a subtle change like that. If everyone had an asteroid in a different location, it might feel way more frustrating. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Or, which is just a, a fascinating thing. And again, I love that. That, it, that is a game which is entirely based around building things and losing them. But it's still fun in a way that Monopoly isn't. And I think there's a, there's a difference. Well, Robo Rally does things like that where... Um, because it feels chaotic enough if you have enough people playing. Like, mm -hmm. it, uh, you, you have that sort of theatrical, comedic response to the loss of progress. Just be like, oh no, I've gone down a pit and now I'm back at the beginning. But it's it's not as it's it's not a kind of and now I feel really sad and I'm going to sulk and I'm going you know it's kind of mm. like oh that's ridiculous and you know you feel a bit oh now I'm going to have to really redouble my efforts and you can build up sort of fun rivalries off that feeling yeah but it's because I think it's um, as soon as you have a certain number of people I think we found that three was you know the the minimum number for really getting the chaos ball rolling. Um, but you really needed to have the feeling of that you couldn't predict everything that was going to happen and these things would feel like ridiculous, glorious accidents or stupid, you know, oh, that, I can't believe that actually came off and that people did behave the way that I thought they would. This was a one in a million shot kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. It's, it's got to be something about loss of control, I guess, that when there are so many wheels turning or so many things mm. sort of in the tombola of chance yeah. that you you sort Basically. of you resign to being like oh well I couldn't help that or that was funny or that was silly but... yeah like I think it makes it easier for that to be a comedic effect yeah. for sure and yeah. it's funny that yeah. framing like framing like works some framing works for some people and not for others like you have people who like really despise things like cosmic encounters or probably robo rally because of the randomness like yes. you just, even though it's the way they framed it as being like this is wacky and a bit all over the place people just go mm, and the fact that like you know that we, none of us can really stand munchkin or flux. Like, it's just, <laughs> oh my god. The, the framing really works for some people and doesn't work for others. Yeah. Cosmic Encounter really still, like, I mean, it's what, it came out in the 70s or something originally. It still really divides <laughs> people 60, between, yeah. um, you know, people who love it and they love all the possibilities and they love the imbalance and the way the players counter that. And there are some people who I think are. They still hate it now, and they're never going to warm up to it. And they play games and they were like, this happened and it was nuts and it was totally unfair and it's. It's a valid criticism. It just yeah. I don't mind that in that context no, I, I, in that game. I think it's just the framing works in some things, and it's fascinating going back to the very start of what we talked about the fact that like the drain ex draining levels from undead in, in D and D. You kind of think like in another system that might be fine. But yeah, it, it's almost a reflection of the fact that like some people, 
And yeah. I suspect I might have been one of these people would see it as being like an amazing role playing thing of like you feel like you've lost a part of yourself and stuff. Mm. But it's a system that fundamentally is based around having specific amounts of gold and XP and it's like a new it's a system that has enough numbers and numerical and stuff that you start taking numbers away from people in a numerical system then they're not cool with that. Which is funny, because you played Torchbearer, which is and if you all about taking things away from exactly. people, right? Yeah, if you had a system like that in Torchbearer, like, people wouldn't even blink, because it's that kind of system, and it's much more, like, vague and and uh, atmospheric, and, and or horrible, obviously. But but still, you know, it's like, it's funny how, how some things just don't fly. And if they mm. don't fly, it's it's probably because of the, the, the system you've built is just not attracting the people who are going to allow that psychology Pip you're really into psychology and games generally aren't you so I guess this was (laughs) well it was really interesting some of the research I was uh, familiar with uh, beforehand but I think it was more that it was one of those good talks where um, they bring together the basic blocks in a way that helps you make a bit of progress in your own brain so I think the best talks at GDC help you have those seeing the matrix moments and so being able to go away from it and look at board games or video games in a slightly different way and go oh that's why I didn't like that particular element Mm. or perhaps that's how uh, this game could improve or do differently or in the case of board games how we could house rules it so my sister likes it more or you know that kind of thing is really interesting like even just idle thoughts as we were going through you mentioned cosmic encounter and um i was thinking that's probably why they have the thing at the beginning where you deal a certain number of cards to people and they have to choose between those small subset rather than yeah what do yeah. you fancy playing from the hundred bajillion yes. different races especially that as it's a be. complex choice you just get two like here's like, two choose yeah, one and like one. that <laughs> takes us back to the choice thing again of if mm. you that feels right. There's so much in this game, but we've narrowed it down to yeah. maybe maybe two things. Here's what you've got. And this even is how, your destiny. How yeah. many cards in most car, card games you dealt at the start of the game? Uh, I play a lot of games at the seven, moment where you start usually. with like yeah. five or seven yeah. or exactly. a number around seven. there. Like deck builders usually give you five in your hand. Well, sure. three is Hearthstone starting, isn't it? Oh, really? Yeah. Is it? Have I made that up? I think it's three. So three is simpler, but seven is a common one. And seven, again, it's just interesting how, like, I find mm. what I love. You know, when I studied psychology at university, like, the thing I loved about it was how much stuff you realise that they find out. Huh, this is a really significant thing. And then you look at the world and you go, yeah, the world's kind of already fallen into place around that. Like, mm. And it's like, you know, they only really knew quite recently about, like, the idea that seven is kind of this number of things that you can comprehend this number of things that you can remember this number of things that feels good in terms of choices and yet before that like a lot of card games already been invented and rolling with this thing of deal player seven cards it's, lucky seven it's funny like it's funny how even when we don't know things as humans we mm. we kind of do i mean even in the sense of i mean to mention video games i'm sorry but um because i play a lot of mobas and people do gravitate often towards particular item builds and I think it's partly just because in the moment in the game you're like there's just so much to keep track yes. of and so, yep. so it's like just tell me just tell me what to buy I don't care just I don't even care if it's suboptimal just tell that's, me yeah. the thing that was my problem with it well. <laughs> I, I, in the end everyone was like well why have you bought that stuff that's not what we need now and I'm just like I don't know what I'm like, it's because I had that much money in my inventory at this point shut up I get fried like... it's like I couldn't play Starcraft online for the same reason <laughs> I was brilliant at Starcraft for the first two minutes of the game but then after that it's like, like as soon as there's like as soon as there's more than four things that can happen yeah. I'm just like I can't do this yeah. no <laughs> anyway the other talk of course which was actually panel which was hosted by a oh. very sexy man uh, what was his name Paul uh, Paul who was that sexy man are you on talking that about the panel that I hosted yesterday yes yeah. I'm talking about you Paul Dean the state and future of board game design Hosted by Sexy Paul Dean. And I stood there going, what a state. What a state, look at you. <laughs> There's no future here. Told someone they weren't going out dressed like that. <laughs> Did Not I? you, I'm oh. saying that you were... Oh. Mm. Um, <laughs> that was a lot of fun. That was uh, Rob Davio, one of the chaps behind Pandemic Legacy and so many other games. Mm-hmm. Eric Lang, who actually is involved with Duelist, I believe, as well as lots of board games, including yep. like the XCOM board game, many others. Uh, and Jeff Engelstein, who did Space Cadets, which we had a whole bunch of crazy co-op fun with and he also did the talk that we have just gone through oh yes of course yes (laughs) um 
And I actually, from having him on the panel, I didn't know this, but I found out he only does that part time. Yes. Only, mm. Yes. As lots of games designers know, uh, making board games doesn't make you hugely rich. It takes quite a long time, and many people have other jobs or do other things. Yeah, well, I mean, we haven't really talked about that a lot, but a lot of the framing of the, what we just talked about was actually framed in his mind about economics and the fact that human brains are bad at making economic decisions. And he's a mm. man who clearly in his main job does shipping and stuff and quite dry things, and so... He's clearly a very economically minded man and has just decided that it's like, hey, doing this as a full-time job is incredibly suboptimal, so I'm not doing it. And <laughs> that's fair. Um, but it was an amazing panel. It was the first time I'd certainly seen anything like that for board games. Really? Yeah, personally. I, I don't know if I've just been missing these things at other cons and stuff, but I know that uh, whenever you have video game conventions, you quite frequently have people sitting on panels and talking about the realities of the business behind uh, things at the moment. But it felt like even though I'd had conversations with many of the people on the panel or I'd listened to them before, it was kind of fascinating hearing them having that back and forth about the sort of state of play of things. And It's, well, it's like a, it's a new thing at GDC and hopefully they'll keep doing stuff like that because it, it felt like fairly well attended and people had a lot of questions to yeah. ask us. Mm. Um, some of it was things I'd heard before wasn't necessarily new to me because I would have read comments in people's blogs or yes. seen online discussions. Some of it was revealing to me, but I guess for, hopefully for a lot of people, it was a sort of a sudden info bomb of all these different things of the practicalities of how you're going to make money, um, how things work in the industry right now, what's changing with crowdfunding Kickstarter, not necessarily being the solution to everything. It's just a mm. different sort of job because fulfillment is a whole issue, logistics, shipping. As we've talked about before and Shut Up and Sit Down, the weird, crazy, old-fashioned thing that's so... Often, some part of board game distribution is a bunch of stuff on a boat, yeah. very slowly going across an ocean, which feels like weirdly regressive. But that's how that part of the infrastructure still works. Mm. Um, I don't know. It was it was interesting to me. And there kept being moments where Eric Lang in particular was saying, you know, a subject would come up and Eric would be like, oh, we could do a whole panel on that. And that yeah. would be like, what's your design process? How do you invent a thing? What's the most practical way to work? Uh, I, I don't know. I wish we could have had a bit more time, answered a few more questions because... Maybe next year. Well, maybe next year because so many people... I guess people have been building up all this stuff for a while and it appears at GDC and they suddenly want to unleash all of their questions. There was some fascinating stuff there. What were your kind of favourite takeaways from there? Um, I like... I liked the persistence thing, but I guess partly because of my philosophy of work being if you want to do something well, there's often not a shortcut. You yes. have to just keep at it and try over and over again until you get it right. And we live in a world where we're told, like, there's one weird diet trick and there's one special way to uh, be inspired and be a better writer and there's a better way to do this and you just don't know it and I've got it and usually the best way to do something is keep practicing and get better yeah. at it. Mm. It was cool uh, to hear them as well. Like they had quite different approaches to work and problem solving, which I thought was quite good. And it was well, the, one of the other things in that was Eric saying all of them were sort of fairly dedicated, and were, a couple of folks like Jeff was saying he juggles a couple of different ideas at a time. Yeah, uh, but also Eric just saying after a while I threw a bunch of stuff away, and that it's almost like a loss aversion thing of mm -hmm. you can get really invested in a design for a long yeah. time. Yes, and I, was it both Rob or Eric? One or both of them were saying. You don't want to spend too long pressing, really pushing a game idea, really trying to develop it when you don't think it might be all that good. Yeah. Just because you, at some point, how can I say this? There's an old poker adage that a good poker is knowing when to fold. Yeah. It's not winning. It's no, well, and you that can thing be, of don't throw good money after bad? You know, yeah. like a bad yeah, anyway. At, at certain points, you have to know when Don't to quit. Don't throw the other kind of money after the first kind of yes. money. Yes, stop sure throwing money at things. <laughs> you, you can be, like, very far into a poker hand, and this is yeah. what distinguishes good and bad poker players. You can get very near to, I don't know, to a showdown, and you might know that you're losing, and a good poker player will be like, there's no point putting any more money in the pot. I have to leave now, even though I'm quite invested in this hand, because mm -hmm. the only thing that can happen is I can be more invested and lose, and there are still a lot of people who are like, oh, but I should put more in. And see what's going to happen. It's like, no, that's not going to work. That's how... Because the good players know that you're going to do that. So yeah. you just ride the thing to the end. 
The Thumper post-mortem touched on similar things just in that they had an idea for the game that they were sort of really committed to and invested in and people kept sort of saying, "Uh, it's not quite working for me and I think um, I didn't attend the talk, Adam was telling me, uh, my colleague um, was telling me about it and that they were kind of like, yeah, but it'll be good when when we've made it work and it's done. (laughs) But, you know, it was that, I think it was at the point at which they could go, oh, no, we need to, we need to have a thing you know and it's it's more about how you get to that point how good you are at editing or how good you are at going do you know what I'm just gonna stop and try something else or you know I'm gonna listen to advice or I'm gonna you know take feedback on and maybe the problems are too fundamental and I need to go a lot further back than I'd like yeah Mm. yeah I think I would say as well though that's something that comes with more experience of whatever you're doing mm. like I think uh, to begin with you have to just keep making things and actually see things through and finish things even if you're not 100% behind it yeah, and actually I think true. that was something that Rob Davio um, uh, touched upon one of the things he said which I thought was creatively one of the wisest things is he said it's just more really about being stubborn and about knowing or at least believing that the thing you're working on now might not be good now but it will be good at some point so there, oh god, what was it? There was a couple of uh, in in the games land. We had a couple of indie developers come in, and uh, I think they were audio designers, and they ended up talking about which projects get seen through. And so many people get excited about starting to make a video game, mm. and then six seven months down the line, somebody runs out of stamina, or somebody runs out of money, and it's like you got to a certain degree, you have to be prepared to see things through. And there are so many. When ideas are new and fresh and exciting, you're like, of course I'm invested in this, but mm. it requires a certain amount of discipline and dedication to make a thing happen, to see it all the way through to the end. And that sort of separates the mice from the... I was going to say the mice from the men or the mice the from bigger the rats. Mice, the bigger the mice. mice from the chaff. The yeah, it separates the, the mice from the chaff. Yeah. The rice from the wheat, the dogs from the mice. The I thought, the um, Ooh, yeah. I thought it was interesting uh, hearing them talking a little bit about stuff. They, they, they Basically, it was a fascinating thing if you're... If you're listening to this and you're somebody who obviously just just likes playing board, playing board games that everybody seemed to be quite positive that the future was great for basically for for players yeah um, in terms of fact so that much there were some worries about the fact that they felt like even though the board game industry was growing the number of games being released was and the number of people trying to kind of find a space in the market was vastly outstripping the kind of actual demand even though demand is growing so there were some worries on that front and they also felt that like there was going to be a shift in terms of more and more games being designed for an optimal first playthrough and that idea of like the fact that in theory people are like oh i want this game to be replayable i want this game to be tight enough to play you know over and over again for years but in reality that they said that that's just not the way people are consuming games anymore um and I know that we've tried hmm. to make a kind of conscious shift in shut up and sit down of almost reviewing less which is strange um, and like making, I mean, for our, from our perspective, it means what we have more time to a play a bunch of things, find out what's really good, yeah, and then make really good videos about them. But I think in a way, it's it's kind of a it's an unusual reaction to a market that is speeding up <laughs> and more and more and more things coming out to be start to be like actually we're going to review slightly less things now. Well, but you just got to you know reach into the. Uh, metaphorical something to find the best metaphorical something. Yeah, I think it's healthy. How's that going for you? Oh, <laughs> that metaphor was. Uh, <laughs> but like, I think this is the thing. Every time there's a glut of supply, curation becomes that much more important because yeah. it's how anybody is going to find anything within this mess. And obviously, as a creator that's a concern because how the heck do you make your voice heard do you make your game shine do you put it in front of the right people you know it's it's there's just so much kind of luck or contacts or persistence involved even on that front that Mm. it becomes kind of prohibitive for some people but I think hopefully that will see a rise in people trying to curate things above and beyond you know obviously I love what we do but um hopefully there will be more sites like that or there will be people who aren't board game geek doing you know more on that front you know just sort of interesting or different or you know sort of a a Pinterest for board games you know trying to work out what's what's good or what aesthetic you might like as well. I was going to quickly say you've got you must be able to relate to that as well as working for Rock Paper Shotgun doing PC video games journalism like Steam now is just so full of video games. That's, we wouldn't be able to review you can't do everything. everything. That, we wouldn't even be able to play everything. That I don't even know like how you cope. But like GDC, where we are now, there are, there's video games everywhere. How do you know which are the good ones? 
Well, I mean, Help me. you don't. So you maybe walk over to where a lot of people are clustered around a thing going, oh, that's really interesting. You know, like, uh, for example, that's how even if you didn't know video games at all, you could walk into a room, see a bunch of people crowded around having fun on a sofa with gang beasts. And mm. you're like, mm. OK, that's one that I should probably be aware of. You know, mm-hmm. so there's a certain amount of just actually looking at people's reactions there's also you know publishers that you actually know or trust or you know like that have had a good track record in things or designers or creators there's also just stuff of even if the game itself isn't very good maybe the art style will be amazing or the visual effects will be brilliant or the writing will be interesting and so it's kind of also about picking apart the elements of the whole you know and just sort of sometimes i'll write entirely about it's the game itself not great but the sea looks amazing or you know things like that because sometimes in terms of experience that's enough yeah you think i enjoyed that well you want to really highlight that person's contribution because even if the rest of it wasn't amazing that was really special in some way and that's a thing that people should also be aware of yeah but it's i mean it's difficult it really is the one thing that i wanted to say from the panel though was um i really liked just because i think it's a helpful crystallization of the thought um it was rob davio talking about the kickstarter phenomenon and essentially advising that whether you go down that route or not is essentially about how much you want to have to do after the initial creation yeah whether you actually enjoy that because like, if you want yeah. to be involved in logistics and planning and distribution and printing and emailing people back and forth about print runs and yeah. you know the actual sort of stock issues, um, some people thrive on that. Yeah, exactly. Then sure, run a small business uh, and do it maybe via Kickstarter. But if you want to write the thing, do the artwork, and then wash your hands of it because the rest of it will not be fun or engaging for you and you'll yeah. be miserable and, you know, sort of give up, then maybe you would want to publish. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of it. I mean, I think that was a, a really fascinating take on, on, on just in life in general. Like People sometimes can be fixated on success as in like, hey, you know, you're doing well. That's great. You've got loads of money. You're doing this. But it's amazing how everybody in all walks of life can find themselves um, being like dragged into doing things that they just don't really want to do. And that happens all the time in like the business world, that people get promoted and they're doing better and they're doing better, but then suddenly they go from doing their job to managing people. And some yeah. people love that, but some people it's just not what they enjoy. And um, I think it is a fascinating thing that, yeah, lots of people don't realise that they're like, hey, I'm going to have this idea for a board game and I'm going to kickstart it, that they get the money and they think, great, now I get to design a game. And it's like, yeah. You do, and then you get to spend like a year of your life doing a job that you might hate and you might be mm. bad at and people might despise you for. So and also the point about like losing your profit incrementally, like yes. just by making slightly suboptimal decisions on, oh, I'll go with this shipping company. Oh, I should have gone with the other one because blah, yeah. blah. And just yeah. the sort of the realizations after the fact that mount up and then eat into that your It just sounds like horrible death by a thousand cuts. Exactly. So... But yes, that was that was really interesting. Well, that's been a fantastic chat with you, Pip. Uh, I know you've got to shoot off now for some important meetings and things like that, which is awesome. I Interviews. Do. Uh, so me and Paul will be continuing with the mailbag and the folk game. But thank you very much for joining us, Pip. Pleasure no as always. Thank you to you guys. Bye. Put your hand in the mailbag for me a letter. Okay. Matt, Matt, what's in your mailbag? What's in my mailbag? I'm reaching right down to the bottom, Paul. Oh, I think, I think this is a letter. Kind of feels slightly... Oh, I, oh, no, that's not a letter. Hang on, let me just reach a bit further. Oh, I've got one. Pull me out by my ankles. Grab my ankles. Pull me out, Paul. No, you've got to stand there and read it to me. Okay. I need to know if it's safe. Okay, let me just switch the small torch on. Jed Hendrickson writes... I've had a question buzzing around my head for months. Why haven't trivia games had a resurgence like other board games have? I grew up in a family that would bring trivial pursuit cards on long car trips. I don't ever remember playing the actual game as a child, probably because it is garbage. That's his words, not mine, although I do completely agree with you, Jed. (laughs) But I distinctly remember being quizzed quite often while we were travelling. That sounds like he's getting into trouble with, like, border control. Um, you folks are amazing and bring a smile to my face every time something new oh. is posted. Oh, that's nice. That's not really part of the question, but I read it no, out before I read it. It's nice, though. Lovely. 
Uh, I immediately want to say there's a couple of reasons why I think this might be the case. First, uh-huh. that trivia game... I mean, I agree, I don't think they're very good. Uh-huh. I think there's more exciting things out there. But also, I, I have a feeling like... In the, in the 80s, I remember having like Trivial Pursuit in the 80s. And maybe, I don't know, something about the period. It's like 1980 might have felt like 1985. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much changed. Actually, no, this is nonsense. But what I mean is <laughs> we have a lot more access to information now. And we can get information quickly. We all, uh, certainly we do. We have devices. We have the internet. We have lots of modes of communicating and finding information that I feel makes trivia less compelling or less of a novelty, whereas I think the further back in time you go, the more of a big deal trivia might have been because... Mm, well, like knowing things was more of a big deal. Information might have been more exclusive or more unusual or, you know, we'd, we would have to go to libraries in the old days to look up stuff that now that we can get interesting. on Wikipedia so it's on almost, our phones in two seconds. It's almost like in the same way that when we were growing up at school and teachers were saying, hey... Why don't you learn maths? And a lot of us were like, uh, why? We have calculators. Like, you do kind of similar thing, but for the internet? Yeah. Like, because I always felt like, why do I need to know how to do this when if I ever need to do this, I can use a machine to do it for me? I mean, it's... And there wasn't really... Teachers were never able to give me a really good answer to that. Uh, well, a really good answer is you might not already have the... You might not always have the thing to rely on. It's good no, to be able to do things Exactly. Yourself. And it is good to be able to do yes. that. And as an adult, I actually have much more interest in maths than I've taught myself retrospectively. And really? I should have learned as a child. Yes. Really? Weirdly. Mm. Um, but... At the same time, yeah, there is that sense of being like, you don't need to know things as much now because you can just look it up. And I, I, don't, I don't know how relevant actually this really is to a trivia game thing, but I do, I just get the feeling trivia was more of a bigger thing in the old days because, because of that information being less accessible. Like, maybe, yeah. You know, growing up in the 80s in my house, if someone didn't know what the capital of a country was, you didn't know. And maybe there was a book in your house that told you, but if not, you just didn't know, and there wasn't going to be a thing on the radio or the TV where someone appears and goes, "The capital of this country is this." The thing I found weird about just trivia know. games, though, is like they were never—I never really played any that were games. They were—they were just quizzes wrapped up with a scoring system, rather than counting how many points you got. The, the points were counted on a board, and really, the moving around the board was just—and there would be elements that would yeah. like basically elements that would make it more. Uh, balanced, maybe not balanced exactly, but able to catch up. Like you basically, you have bits where if you land on this space, you have to stop, which is basically a way of like point capping a quiz. So you can't have one team that's like shoots off catastrophically. Um, but I mean, quizzes are still popular now in the UK. Pub quizzes, people competitively doing it for money. I, well, I feel like they've become more popular. So maybe to some degree, they've rela- replaced that trivia game experience the fact that you can go to a pub and uh meet strangers play play with more people in the pub yeah than you could uh with like four or five people in, in your house so i kind of feel it's two things i kind of feel like partly it's because trivia games were never really games they were just quizzes wrapped up strangely yeah and to be honest so many things that constituted games things like snakes and bloody ladders etc when you were a kid like now we look at them and go this isn't really a game there's not enough there's it's nothing just here it's just nonsense um, and so maybe now it's like because there was nothing really there for trivia games Games. How um, did we survive all that? The Trivial Pursuit is still popular. Um, I think that's the problem is it's almost like, um, as people were talking about in the talks yesterday with CCGs and the fact that like, it's just a space that there isn't space in the market for. Maybe, maybe trivia games are still just Trivial Pursuit and there's no point making another one because if well, people want I, that, they get that. I tell you what as well, it's got more branded or more licensed or more specialised. Like Again, when I was a kid, there was Trivial Pursuit that had, like I think, some more general culture and history and stuff where nowadays they'll be like, Trivial Pursuit Star Wars or... Right. Uh, what was it? Probably Marvel, I what guess. One of those things that you watch on DVD and they ask you questions and it'd be like a Friends quiz and you have to watch a Friends DVD and it says, in this episode, what did Joey do? What did... Uh, Probably something to do with Ham. Yeah, and um, Seen It or something they were called. Yes, I remember that, yeah. Uh, I feel like a trivia's also got more specialised. It's... It's probably more fun for people to know specific stuff about Game of Thrones or Friends or whatever. I guess also it's, I mean, uh, on a very basic logistical level, it's a pain in the ass. You've got to write all these questions and then they date. Like, if yeah. you pull out a trivial pursuit from 20 years ago, it's impossible to ask you questions about popular entertainers that you've never heard of. Just because it's like, if you're trying to be relevant, then, yeah, so maybe publishers just generally think, well, yeah, but we then design this game and then we sell it for, like, 
a few years, but then after five years, maybe you need to update it. And unless you have a model where you can get a big deal game going, like Cranium was quite big for a while, yeah, um, and you can have it selling enough copies that you can keep refreshing it and keep selling new versions, I imagine it's just not great. But I don't know. I mean, I think they're just not very good. So yeah, I think I, I can't say that I miss them or feel sad about them oh, not yeah. being there. How's it going, everybody? This is Quinn's. Did you miss me? I bet you didn't because these guys are irritatingly good. But I tell you what, I'm editing this podcast and I had to jump in here because they've forgotten some trivia games that are absolutely worth mentioning. So the one the board game community has embraced the most is definitely Wits and Wagers, a trivia game where the questions are all really hard, like how many eggs does France eat in a year, and you have to write down what you think it is. But also you have to wager on which of your friends is going to get closest. So even if you're an idiot, but you know your friends well, you can win. So it's how much do you know how much your friends know about you? Speaking of Cranium, Asmodee has also just released their own Cranium-ish uh, multifaceted intellect gut-busting comedy game which is called Braintopia. That came out just this month and maybe it's good. I don't know. If you know whether it's good or not, definitely leave a comment on this podcast. And if you're a history dork like me, Timeline is still a fantastic game about time. Time's great. It's probably time that I let Paul and Matt do the folk game, isn't it? Rather than just talking over their podcast. It's probably quite rude. Bye. Well, there's a there's a kind of quite dry answer to your mailbag <laughs> question, Mr. Jed Henderson. Thank you very much for your question. And of course, if you would like to send us yes. questions. How did I do that, Paul? Uh, you could send the question to, I don't know, contact at shutupandsitdown.com. Would that work? Just send that in, and I guess we could look at that with one or both of our eyes. I think so, yeah. So uh, send us a message in. And also we've got a, another thing people sending in. Lots of people sending them in. Folk games of the... Folk games... Of the podcast. Of the podcast. Because <laughs> the podcast isn't always monthly, so <sighs> etc. These so, are usually just kissing or being in the dark or kissing in the dark now. I'm seeing a theme here and it's just this. Yeah, well, let's have a jingle. Folk game of the month. Now we're back after having a jingle. Um, yeah, it is mostly just kissing, isn't it? Or knives. We get a lot of people sending us stuff that are just like to do with basically just hitting each other in the balls and stuff. And we're like, it's not really a game. Anyway, uh, do you want to read this one out? It's uh, quite long or do you want me to do it? Give it. I'd be honest. I haven't looked at this deliberately because I want a surprise, and I'm hoping it's not about kissing or hitting people okay. or darkness. Read it, and we'll see how how much I can keep it together. Okay. James Ofalt writes, "Dear, shut up and sit down. I work as an actor, and there are a few games, a few games that crop up during performances of shows, especially ones with long runs and or a large chorus. The first two semi-related games are Butt Tag and Pass the Penny." I can see your face has just dropped, Paul. In butt tag, one actor will start as it, and the cast will continue to functionally play tag, and whoever is it, tagging the behind of other actors who then become it, and so on, with the goal of not being it at the end of the show. The catch is that all tagging must be done on stage during the performance, (laughs) encouraging creative and stealthy ways of tagging one's fellow performers without ruining the scene. So, wow. Okay. That so, has, I don't know if that's ruined theatre for me or made theatre even better, because I'm not going to be able to get, see a show now without <laughs> watching to see, like... Are, are they touching each other's bums covertly? Macbeth, like, touching Banquo's bottom I'm or not something. sure about this as well. I kind of feel this is, like, covering up some, some naughty stuff, because somebody might be like, oh, you know, somebody just touched my bum during the performance, but I guess we're just playing... What if they're not it? What if they're not it and they're just touching your bum? I think this is a dangerous game to play. Mm. But again, it's the theatre. It's a fun time. If everybody's game for touching each other's bums, then that's fine. My experience of theatre and actors and having done a little bit of that is the you, you get comfy with each other quite quickly and the boundaries yes. tend to be very fluid, so they're yeah, probably all... It, indeed, yeah, boundaries being fluid is, uh, is, is absolutely... Let's not talk about that any further. Past the Penny follows the same idea of butt oh, tag, boy. except rather than grabbing... A behinds. Grabbing, rather than grabbing behinds, one actor starts with a penny, which they transfer to the pocket of another actor 
during a scene. Okay, that's this is more this is more safe. Uh, this can open up tactics of trying to place the penny unnoticed, uh, though backstage conversation almost always reveals who currently has the penny or is it, as the actors laugh and brag about the tactful ways they have executed their play at the game. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Trying to slip a penny into, onto somebody's person somehow whilst you're on a stage. Again, you look really disappointed. No, just I, like, I'm here to watch a, a good theatre show and these people are messing around. I'm thinking of actors like passing one another, you know, trying not to change their blocking and their marks too much, but just slipping a penny into a pocket or something like that. And then you feel it while you're on stage. Maybe you feel that penny slip in and you have to continue delivering your line or your animated, passionate monologue and then find a way to slip the penny into your and there, there must be the occasional like sound of a pin dropping but it's not pin dropping it's a penny dropping because someone's fumbled the penny they're trying to pass it and it's it's now on the floor someone's got to pick it up now it. i feel that this is getting in the way of performances i feel like uh, i feel like these games like especially if running concurrently it's like you're supposed to be acting like i i especially when it gets this final bit i just scanned ahead slightly and i'm just like oh come on like this must be like this is wonderful though. i still love it but i kind of feel like i'm like this is getting to the point where technically you're kind of doing your job badly and having fun but anyway, um, the other game we play, Tap Tap for Jesus, which is possibly the best what name for happening? any game, <laughs> involves going up to someone during a scene, generally when you have dialogue with them, and double tapping them on the stage in some way, on their shoulder, in a handshake, etc. That person must then deliver their line to Jesus, saying it as over the top as possible and directing it to the sky regardless of what the next line is he says obviously this isn't the best game for serious shows I'm glad he's clarified that but in campy large musicals it can be fun as far as I know there's no win condition for tap tap just the chance to see someone make an outrageous choice (laughs) thanks for listening James Ofalt and he says he's he's from Pennsylvania in uh, Pennsylvania, I can't never say that. Pen, Penny, Pennsylvania, by the sounds of it. <laughs> Pennsylvania, that's the thing. In the US, if that's worth knowing to anyone, I don't know if theatre games differ regionally. I'd, I'd definitely be interested to hear other things. The thing is, actors tend to, tra- especially jobbing actors, theatre actors, travel around for work. So I bet some of this has spread a bit. I bet it has. I would be fascinated to know if, if actors in other places in America are listening to that going, ah, yes, or if they're going, tap, tap to Jesus. No, we play tap, tap to the dead, where you look down and say it morosely or anything, if there's variations, or if, if people are just listening as actors going, that's terrible. <laughs> but I love that, especially in camp musicals, of just I... having to tap someone twice and then whatever their next oh line is, God. they have to just shout it upwards. I'm going to make a confession <laughs> now as well about slipping things in people's pockets. Oh, God, what have you been doing? So last night uh, I saw some friends at a GGC party. As things, You know, lots of these things happen. They tend to be social events, a chance to meet people that network, uh, that horrible work, you know, meet friends and just relax after long days. And there, there were what the peas in a pod called, snap peas or mange too or something. Lovely peas. The ones where you squeeze them out and you eat them and you just have the pod Yeah, left. lovely peas. Lovely peas. Uh, me and a colleague, uh, a peer who will remain anonymous, decided rather than putting the expended pods uh, just on the plate to a side... Because so many people were wearing hoodies, it would be much better, much more reasonable <gasps> oh. to put pea pods into people's hoodies. Strangers' hoodies? Uh, one, well, one of them wasn't a stranger. He was just an important head of a video game company. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think he ever noticed. Um, and then, you know, from hoodies, it turned into sort of people's side pockets. Oh, my oh, God. Their, their bags. Pocket peas. Um, you've, you've invented a folk game. And this isn't even new. This Paul's goes pocket back peas. to a couple of... Like, we have done this now multiple times. Oh, I, I want to call it Paul's pocket peas. Call it Paul's pocket peas. <laughs> and I want to hear other people playing Paul's pocket peas. <laughs> we had a thing a couple of years ago where we were um, in a different country on a press trip. And uh, there were... In... I don't know, it was the cafe or the canteen or something, there were sugar cubes. So the same thing just happened with sugar cubes ending up in people's pockets and their hoodies. Oh, my. Until I went back to my hotel room at the very end of the trip and found someone had moved all the sugar cubes into my hotel room without me noticing. (sighs) How did that happen? Oh, you got gamed. You got gamed. I don't understand why why we... I'm, I'm not young. I'm an adult. This is... The most fun to have on a press trip. It is. That sounds like a lot of fun. Just, just, just letting the silliness overwhelm. It's so you. sort of harmless and dumb, and then you just find new ways to do an old thing. 
you know, so you're the person who gets on the plane, you go home, that was a nice press trip, and you're unpacking, you're like, why, why are all why are the sugar cubes here? Why is my suitcase full of sugar? Well, I'm going to try and find a way to break Come into on. your room. Anyway, thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Uh, we've had a fun time. It's been a bit of an inside baseball one this time, I guess. We didn't really specifically talk That's about fine. games. But I think if you're interested in games, interesting, manipulate you. Different angle. Different things, then hopefully you've really enjoyed it. If you have really enjoyed it, you can go onto iTunes and you can uh, leave us a little review if you fancy. Lovely. Or if you have not done so in the past recently times, you should pop onto our website. Shutupandsitdown.com. And check out some of the stuff we've been doing. We've been doing some great videos. Videos, written reviews, news, oh, cool had, news. We had Paul's uh, big review of Scythe, which we wrote okay on we had our a big review of uh arkham horror yeah. the living card game which me and quince were very big into and i'm still excited to which i'm a bit surprised about because initially we looked at that we we're a bit skeptical and we you guys really warmed up to it absolutely and pip um has had a written review of robo rally which i think has went yeah. quite recently so there's a bunch of great stuff to check out on there please do and again if you're interested in checking out our monica's kickstarter getting some uh some fun to put into your pocket then you can go to nonsensebox.sexy. Sexy. Uh, Sorry about that, but we should have run that past you. It's too late now. It is. It's too late. It's too late for everybody. Thanks for listening, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.